Welcome to the dinner party. This is your icebreaker. So, so here's a joke. Why did the banana run out of the room? Because he had a split. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan, and from APM American Public Media, this is The Dinner Party, the culture show that gives you an edge in your weekend conversations. You just got a very childish joke from documentary director Morgan Spurlock. That'll help break the ice. His new movie, Comic-Con 4, A Fan's Hope, is out now. Later, we'll speak with Greta Gerwig, star of Witt Stillman's new film, Damsels in Distress. And this is her second time appearing on the show, and I, for one, am doubly honored. I, I, for two. Also coming up, is Food the New Hip Hop? Questlove knows. He's frontman for The Roots, and we'll be hearing from him. Also author Carl Hyacin on reality, and music from the Alabama Shakes. Hear why they are the buzziest band in the nation. But first, hear the news. Except there's no news to hear, because this is a podcast. On with the show. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano. Welcome to The Dinner Party, the culture show that gives you an edge in your weekend conversations. Later in the show, actress Greta Gerwig, star of movies like Greenberg, Arthur, and the new Damsels in Distress, tries to shed her quirky reputation. I am a Chryslerless saver. I don't know. I'm big. And fails. Still quirky. Plus, coming up, the history of matches. Complete with fire puns. But first, as at any dinner party, we start with small talk. All week long, you've been hearing this. The 100-year anniversary of the sinking of the Titanic. North Korea launching what America calls a secret attempt to test a ballistic missile. Rick Santorum suspended his presidential campaign. Now for a story you might not have heard. We are speaking with Eric Zorn. He is a columnist for the Chicago Tribune. And Eric, what story are you going to be talking about this weekend? I'm going to be talking about how the St. Thomas Boys Choir in Leipzig, Germany, is having a problem because they're their sopranos, the young boys, their voices are cracking younger and younger, and they're running out of soprano voices. This is a, a big problem for the choir. It's an 800-year-old institution. Well, really? sopranos in short supply here. Their voices are getting deeper at a younger age? Well, apparently it used to be back in the 1700s, according to this uh, story that I read. The uh, boys, Their voices changed at about age 17 or 18, and mm. that's gradually lowered to about 14 or 15, and now it's getting to be about age 13 puberty is changing. But do we know why this is happening? I mean, are kids exposed to heavy bass pop music at an earlier age now or something? I don't know. Maybe it's hormones in the water or something. But it's, <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's an interesting phenomenon. And, and when the boys are, when their voices are changing, they, they have to work in the ticket booth. And so <laughs> you, you buy your tickets, all the boys' voices are cracking. Wow. You know, this must mean the Gregorian monks have a lot of applicants, right? Because <laughs> there's more and more low yeah, voices. Yeah, there's lots of low voice boys who are probably coming into the job pool. Well, and, and there's probably a big market for boys who are like eight and nine years old who can sing those soprano parts because they got to get them in there early if they're going to keep them and train them. So it seems like it's it's a pretty easy solvable problem, though. They can just get younger boys to sing, right? Yeah, but the problem with that is that the choir directors find that the younger boys don't really know how to sing with much emotion, that it takes the, a 12 year old to put the proper feeling into these into these uh, oh yeah yeah a vet yeah like a, a 12 year old at a private school in germany can really sing about the agony and ecstasy <laughs> of living well in a way that an eight-year-old a nine-year-old just can't I mean, oh yeah they experience the world so much in those three years it is yeah it's a sixth grade in germany you know it's really uh, <laughs> yeah it's pretty i'm sure it's intense yeah it grows you up fast it deepens the soul man they're uh, like little otis reddings by the time they're 12 <laughs> over there <laughs> eric zorn <laughs> Columnist for the Chicago Tribune, thank you for the small talk. Thanks a lot for having me. And now, time for cocktails. 
Once again, we tell you something that happened this week in history, then give you a fitting drink to serve along with it. It's our crowd-pleasing history lesson with booze. First, the history. This week back in 1827, a British chemist began selling a new invention that changed his countrymen's lives. No, it wasn't lager. Michelle Philippi tells the story. Humans first made fire hundreds of thousands of years ago, but we didn't figure out matches till 1827. Oh, there'd been something similar. At the turn of the 19th century, you could buy bits of wood coated with chemicals, which you dipped in sulfuric acid. A few seconds later, the chemicals reacted and made a burst of flame. But these so-called Promethean matches weren't super practical. If the chemicals accidentally combined in your pocket, your clothes might burst into flames. Luckily, a British chemist named John Walker came up with an alternative after mixing some chemicals to make a percussion cap for a gun. The mixture dried on his stirring stick, which he tried to scrape clean by dragging it across a piece of wood. To his surprise, it caught fire. Walker had invented the first friction matches. They still weren't exactly danger-free. Walker's matches sometimes shot sparks several feet across a room, but they were definitely an improvement, and Walker sold them at his pharmacy for three years. He named them Congreves, after the British Army's Congreve rocket. Walker wasn't much of a businessman, though. He never patented his invention. So a guy named Samuel Jones swiped the idea. He named his product Lucifer's. And they became so famous, some countries still call matches Lucifer's today. So that was the history lesson. Now it's time for the booze. I'm on the line with Alan McPhail. He is the acting manager at the Vane Arms, a bar in Stockton-on-Tees, the birthplace of John Walker. Alan, thanks for joining us. Hello and welcome from the Vane Arms in Thorpe Stockton-on-Tees. And Stockton-on-Tees, so that's, Tees is the river nearby your, your community? Yes, that's right, yeah. We're, we're in a kind of industrial area, and the Tees just runs out to the North Sea, and we're, we're just on either side of the river there. Well, I'm speaking to you from Los Angeles on Pacific, <laughs> and uh, so you heard the history. What drink did it inspire you to make? We came up with the name Strike. The Strike. Yeah, we, we wanted the cocktail to actually look like a match as well. So um, so we got Bailey's Irish Cream, then okay. we added uh, Kahlua, and then we thought, uh, because it is a match and it is fiery, we wanted to give it a little bit of heat, so we added some brandy as well. Oh, so wow. that makes up the main stick, if you like, of okay. the match. And this is in a tall glass, like a Tom Collins glass? It is actually quite strong, so I'm sort of recommending that maybe you have it in a smaller shot <laughs> all right. size glass. So um, uh, we do have a saying around the bar now, because all the locals have been trying it, and we all say three strikes and you're out. <laughs> 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 That's the way it's going at the moment. Wait, so, so, so you've been experimenting with some of your locals and that you've been incinerating their minds with your drink? Uh, that's right, yeah. <laughs> Mind you, don't get burned. <laughs> well, tell me a little bit about how you got the red, um, the red part on top. What's on top? That is grenadine added to a beaten egg white, um, which also has a little bit of caster sugar added to that as well. You probably made the drink strong just so you don't have to make a lot of these because they sound pretty complicated. Yeah, I mean, we, uh, you get them out quite quick. Okay. So it's been quite fun, actually. It's created a little bit of uh, razzmatazz in the bar. And then, so we have an amazing photo that we're going to share with our audience on our website that you put sparklers in there. Now, are these the thing you normally have at the bar? Um, 
they're a cake decoration, basically, and yeah. we just clip them to the side of the glass. Yeah, and they're actually a distant cousin of the match, right? I mean, <laughs> of course, yeah, <laughs> you get the connection. <laughs> so, Alan, I, I think you should go out right now and copyright this cocktail. Don't let history repeat itself. <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully, it won't. So, Rico, uh, natives of Stockton-on-Tees also invented penicillin, the ShamWow, and the iPod, all of which they failed to patent. That's not true. That's not true. All. But Alan did take a photo of the strike, and it's a beaut. You can check it out at our website. Yes, you'll also find the recipe there and all of our past cocktail recipes. Head to dinnerpartydownload.org and click on Cocktails. And now, the guest list in which an interesting person lists some interesting things. Today, our guest is best-selling author Carl Hyacin. He's known for writing thrillers, but he also won a Newbery Award for young adult fiction. His latest YA book is a send-up of reality TV, so we had him bring us a list of his quote-unquote favorite reality shows. My name is Carl Hyacin, and I'm a columnist for the Miami Herald, and I've written uh, a number of novels, and the latest one for young readers is called Chomp. It's about a star of a TV survivalist show who gets airdropped into the Everglades and gets cut off from his crew. And he's not really a survivalist at all, but he looked good on television. And a couple of kids have to sort of help him out. Here's my list of the three top, if, if that's the right word, reality shows that are highly addictive and highly entertaining, not necessarily for the reasons that they think they're entertaining. The first one, of course, is Man vs. Wild with Bear Grylls. And I don't know if this is even still on the air because I read something where he might have been dismissed recently or is no longer with the show. But anyway, it's a great premise. He gets airdropped into all these wild places. And he, it's absolutely required that he eats something gross two or three times. A centipede, a frog, he'll grab a snake and bite its head off. And, he, you know, you're, you're supposed to imagine that he's alone, even though there's a whole crew of people, camera crew, sound guy, they've all got... I'm sure granola bars in their pockets and all kinds of fluid and everything else, but he's still drinking out of the polluted stream. There you go. That's what I mean. It's a rhino beetle larva there. When they're cooked, they're a bush delicacy. No wonder they fry them. Oh. Man vs. Wild, it was sort of the groundbreaker for these survivalist TV shows where... I'm going into the wilderness, it's just me and my Swiss Army knife and, like, an extra pair of socks. And now there's probably a half dozen of these things. There's a couple, like a married couple, that do a survival show. I don't know the name of it, but just the idea of being alone with your spouse under these circumstances. You can imagine, that would be survivalist if you were at Bergdorf's. We check the bed frame, we check the nightstand on the side of the bed, we're looking at the rug. Number two, I'd have to vote for uh, Infested. It's a phenomenal show. It, it reconstructs the sad lives of people who wake up one day and their homes are infested. The one I saw was bed bugs. Immediately I saw movement on the bed frame. And then the bugs tripled and quadrupled, and the bugs were everywhere. And it, this is all reconstructed dramatically with actors, of course. But it's every week it's something. It's bed bugs, roaches. Uh, there was spiders, scorpions is, was a good one. And you, every week you tune in to see how much worse can it get. They were on my baby. For me, having grown up when Florida was truly a, a wild and an undeveloped place, of course, I, all of us who are from that generation always root for the whatever's infesting. 
maybe excluding shark attacks, but otherwise they're always rooting for nature, always rooting for the wild critters. I'm not sure you could generate that kind of sympathy for bed bugs necessarily, but growing up I was always in favor of the wild things. And now it's like a feeding time. For number three, I don't know if I can top infested, but there's a great show that my kids gotten addicted to called Sons of Guns, and it's about this company, I think it's in Alabama, Louisiana, and they just make guns. All they do, somebody comes in and says, I want a gun that'll knock over a garbage truck. And they'll all sit around a table and come up with this cannon. I think Vince might be hitting on something. A chromed out, belt-fed machine gun with a motorcycle handlebar for a control and a clutch lever for a trigger. You know, this is their jobs. This service is available, and I don't think most of America realizes that they can upgrade to the kind of weaponry that really will take out a whole battalion uh, when, we, when we get invaded, when the black helicopters land. And I have to say it's a very cool deal when they do blow up the garbage truck. Everybody's cheering. Liberals, conservatives, Democrats, Republicans have to say, that's really cool. Look at that thing. It just, it's just splinters. That's awesome, man. That is awesome. You know, I mean, these are guilt programs. Obviously, this, the subtext is always, this is ridiculous. You know, we then will watch Planet Earth, you know, where you have a thousand penguins mating. We do, we'll do the healthy things. We'll balance the ridiculous with the sublime. guest list from author Carl Hyacin. His new book for young adults is called Chomp, and it came out this month. So Rico, Hyacin lives in Florida, right? Yeah, that's correct. So I'm thinking he may side with nature most of the time, yeah. but I'm guessing in summer he sides with air conditioning, right? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> humidity right. is an evil thing. Air conditioning and bug spray. Yeah. Uh, folks, we're going to take a break. Coming up, Kathy Griffin teaches us how to shut down a party. I will actually make the clapping sound and say, let's wrap it up. Subtle when the dinner party returns. Welcome back to The Dinner Party, the culture show that helps you win your dinner party. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano. Coming up, kids' music band The Imagination Movers gives us tips for entertaining children. And later, Questlove of The Roots discovers the food world. This is almost like the secret library inside of like Batman's castle. How did Batman find time to read? I do not know. He's so busy. But first... It is time for our etiquette segment. Yes, each week you send us your questions about how to behave, and here to answer them this time around is Kathy Griffin. One could say that she's an expert in misbehavior. Absolutely. That's why we have you here. (laughs) Misetiquette. You've won two Emmy Awards with your Bravo reality show, Kathy Griffin, My Life on the D-List. damn right I did. Um, You have a new TV show, which is a really original title. It's called Kathy. Yeah. And it premieres uh, this Thursday, April 19th. 10 p.m. on Bravo. And... Kathy, this is a talk show, right? Yes, it is. Where you'll be talking with celebrities. No. No? It's an hour once a week show where I will be talking to non-celebrities because I feel strongly that I cannot really let it rip with celebrities. Yeah, well, yeah. see, and this is, our question was going to be, how are you going to get celebrities on your show since you have a reputation for dissing celebrities? I don't want them. So we're not invited, obviously, because we're too, we're You're too, too big. popular. Yeah, You're too, too big. famous for that. the show. Okay. By the way, one that's actually been sort of a fun thing because when I have been running into my few actual celebrity friends, I'm able to say, you are too famous to be asked on my show. <laughs> and they're like, but no. Whew. 
Yeah. Oh, believe me, they're all they're all glad to be um, off the hook. But that's the thing is, you know, in this era of a million talk shows and you've sort of seen every guest, I will be talking to, as I lovingly refer to them as civilians, meaning okay. real people that can um, fearlessly say what they really feel about pop culture Ooh. figures, po- politicians, celebrities and otherwise. I've heard of these rare beasts. Yeah. Like my mother, who will just give her a little wine and she'll say anything about the Kardashians. Is your mother, your mother's 91 now, 91 right? years young. She <laughs> sent me a great email today where she said, in all caps... So it's like she's yelling at me even via email. And she said, I'm very excited about your show, although I still am unclear on the concept. Which is great. I don't need her to know what the concept is. I just need her to show up, have a little wine. And start talking about Kendra. That's what Rico and I do. Sure. Works for us. We don't talk about Kendra. Kendra the supermodel, not on our conversation list usually. Mm. But speaking of our jobs, we should get to our first question. from uh, This is from our listener, Michelle. From Michelle. She's in a place called Facebook. She <laughs> asks, how can you gracefully get guests to leave when they've overstayed their welcome at a party or dinner at your home? Wow, I'm the worst because I will actually make the clapping sound and say, let's wrap it up. (laughs) And I'll do actually like the finger sound like I'm twirling like a helicopter. So that's how bad I've gotten because my schedule is so, it fluctuates so much. Sometimes I have to get up very early. Sometimes I have to stay up very late and do stand-up. So I've gotten very bad and very brazen about saying like, you guys are awesome. I got to kick you out. I got to hit the hay. But see, you can do that though because you're Kathy Griffin and people are like, that was awesome. Kathy Griffin gave me the slow clap. She's as obnoxious in person as I would have seen her on TV. Yeah. But what can Facebook Denizen Michelle do? I think I think it's one of those things where you have to maybe give like a parting gift or maybe you can act like they were already leaving. Like, oh, my gosh, before you go, I just remembered I wanted to give you this to go bottle of bad rum. I was re-gifted. I like the psychology of that. It's like you tell them what you want them to be doing. Exactly. You could try reverse psychology, you know, like stay. Can you stay all night? That would be so great. Let's go sort the closet unless you have to go. (laughs) All right, Valerie, I think that's your guidance. That's all you need to know. (laughs) So this question comes from Kathleen in New Jersey. She asks, how do I handle my child wanting to have a friend over that I don't think is a good influence? I've been dragging my feet, but said child of mine isn't giving up. My mom has this problem with Andy Dick. She's thinking, how many times can I let Andy come over? I just don't think he's a good influence. This would be Andy Dick, the, the brilliant but troubled comic. That's right. She thinks he's a, he's a bad influence for some reason. I don't know why. Maybe being on Celebrity Rehab and Sober House is a hint. She's old-fashioned. But your mother's the one who drinks wine. You That's don't even true. Drink. My mom should talk. I yeah. mean, my mom and Andy Dick in a drinking contest is called a horse race. <laughs> But, it's a photo um, finish. It's, yeah. Uh, no, I would say, um, I think you have to make up an excuse. I, for example, don't like children. I don't <laughs> like yours, and I don't even know if you have them. No. But if you do have them, I don't like them. I don't believe that they're gifted. I'm tired of everyone's kids being gifted. I find that annoying. Yeah. And also, I, I don't buy it that yeah. everyone's kids are gifted now. It does seem statistically unlikely. Thank you. So what I tend to do that's not completely... Uh, nurturing as a friend is I tend to tell all my friends with kids that my house is not kid friendly. Uh, And that's my Mm. way of saying, don't even think about it. Don't Mm. be bringing your kids over. Mm. Not on Mrs. Kathy's watch. Interesting. So maybe maybe this woman could say that for some reason, this house is not friendly to whoever the offending friend is. Like a lot of exposed nails. Yes. Which I'm I'm okay with my own daughter being exposed around, but not her friend that I don't care for. But I have a question. Do you live with your mother now? 
My mom lives half with me and half in the retirement village. Okay. And I would like her to live with me full time, but she finds me, quote, annoying. Oh. Yeah. So perhaps we can deduce where you get your distaste for children exactly. from. From your mom. The master. Do you think people tell your mom not to bring you over? Absolutely. <laughs> wow. I know for a fact that they don't care for my work. Wow. They do not care for my language or my choices. Is that why she has to come back from the retirement home half the time because she's getting made fun of? Yes. She gets made fun of in her, like, lunch hall. It's like high school. It's like Heather's. My mom's like a 90. One-year-old Heather's. So, Kathleen, basically, you've asked the wrong person. Oops. Right. Again, and unfortunately, that's the answer to every question so far. <laughs> sort of, but that's fine. Uh, We're changing Jess- lives, people. <laughs> Jessica in St. Paul, Minnesota, writes: Is there a polite way to ask someone to stop chewing with his mouth open? Mm. I've come up with possible scenarios, like maybe before the meal, I might mention I had a date the week before with a great guy until he ate his food like a lion who just brought down a zebra. But that seems passive aggressive, and I'm trying not to be so Midwestern, says Jessica in St. Paul. Okay, I actually have an answer for this. Okay. I suggest that Jessica, um, all of her friends that are chewing with their mouth open, they go live with Oprah and Gail for one weekend. Hear me out. (laughs) Okay. I know you guys love your Oprah. This would be Oprah Winfrey and her best friend Gail. Thank you. And I know you have never missed an episode. So what you'll know, I'm preaching to the choir, but Oprah has actually mentioned in several episodes how she cannot stand when people chew with their mouths open. Really? Mm. She doesn't like gum poppers. She will um, kick them out of her home. And yeah, and she has mentioned many times like people chewing with their mouths open and how she feels it's rude or inappropriate or just grosses her out. So I have a very easy solution that I think anyone at home can do, which is go live with Oprah for the weekend in Montecito. (laughs) And trust me, by Sunday night, your friend will not be chewing any lions hunting for zebras or whatever that Donald Trump Jr. reference was. Her house is super (laughs) big, so there's plenty of room. That's right. There's plenty of room and she and Gail are just going to be cuddling in the other room and they're not even going to notice. You. They're going to just give you a little etiquette lesson, have some of those frozen scones from Williams and Sonoma, mm-hmm. and call it a day. Is this the kind of conversation you're going to have on your show, by Not the way? Not this highbrow. Yeah. Not quite this cerebral, <laughs> but along say. these lines. My show is pure conjecture. Okay, There's no good. facts or anything. There's pure conjecture. Jealous. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Jealous. No credibility. Zero. <laughs> Kathy? Let's wrap it up. We Gentlemen, gotta, we got to get out of here. Take the wife and go. That's We've, right. Our segment has ended. Kathy Griffin, this thanks so much. This has been such a pleasure. Likewise, thanks for telling our audience how to behave. Of course. And folks, as you may have noticed, our etiquette segment isn't just for questions about dinner parties. No, we accept questions about all sorts of parties. Uh, in fact, next week, bona fide party expert Andrew W.K. will be here to answer your questions. Yes, the man behind songs like It's Time to Party, Party Hard, and Party Till You Puke will be here to tell you how to comport yourself at social gatherings. Wow. It's an amazing world we live in, Rico. It is. <laughs> Send us questions via dinnerpartydownload.org or call the DPD hotline, a.k.a. Brendan's office phone. The number is 213-621-3554. Eavesdrop. We all know about Fred Astaire, less well-known as Adele Astaire. Australian theater scholar Kathleen Riley is trying to change that. Her new nonfiction book is called The Astaires, Fred and Adele. Today we overhear her recounting a dinner party-worthy anecdote about the duo's adventures. Hello, I'm Kathleen Riley, and I have just written a book on Fred and Adele Astaire. Now, Adele Astaire is not so well-known as Fred, obviously, 
we think of Fred and Ginger, but Fred and Adele came before Fred and Ginger. Adele was Fred's sister. What surprises a lot of people is that she was the biggest star of the two. She never went into films, so she's kind of lapsed into obscurity nowadays. But she was probably one of the first pop icons of the 20th century. She was a terrifically sparky, lively personality with real star quality. They had huge successes on both sides of the Atlantic, but one show they did was a colossal flop, and it was called, very inaptly, Smiles. The show was just doom-laden, and one night in Boston, when it was on the road, wanting to escape, they decided to go for a bit of a joyride, Fred and Adele, and their co-star Marilyn Miller, and one of the chorus boys. They drove across the Longfellow Bridge, which connects Boston and Cambridge, and Fred had the drivers stop halfway along. And he and Marilyn got out of the car while Adele and the chorus boy stayed in the car. Fred and Marilyn were leaning over the railing of the bridge, just looking down, contemplating the water, when suddenly they hear another car pull up, and all of a sudden, Fred feels this heavy hand on his shoulder, and he's really sort of given the bum's rush. He's shaken like a dice box, he later described it. His sister, meanwhile, in the car, sees that these two policemen had pulled up, grab hold of her brother, and she leaps out of the car, always being the fighter of the two. She just launches herself on this policeman, starts cursing at him, and she had, for someone so ladylike, a very profane tongue. And she started belting into the policeman, who then drops Fred like this startled dog, dropping his prey. And Fred just explains calmly and nonchalantly, well, that's my sister. What had happened, the policeman, this bridge, and the very spot where they'd pulled up just to take a few moments, was a notorious spot for suicide. So Fred and Marilyn Miller were taken for a young Harvard freshman and his girlfriend about to undergo some kind of suicide pact. And eventually, of course, it was explained that, no, they weren't weren't about to throw themselves off the bridge, despite the fact that they were connected with this smiles, which was the most colossal flop turkey <laughs> that you could imagine. And in a sort of sneaky instance of revenge, Fred gave the policeman uh, tickets to the show. He thought that was the perfect way to get back at them. Australian theatre scholar Kathleen Riley sharing a story from her new book about Fred Astaire and his sister Adele. The book is called The Astaires, and you're listening to The Dinner Party from American Public Media. And now, time for Chattering Class. This is the part of the show where we are schooled by an expert in some dinner party-worthy topic. Today the topic is how to entertain kids... And we are joined by some people who do that for a living. Rich Collins and Scott Durbin are two members of the Imagination Movers. 
They are a pop rock band whose music is aimed squarely at kids. Parents may have seen them on the Disney Junior music and comedy show called The Imagination Movers. And they launch a U.S. tour this week. Rich, hello. Hello. And hello, Scott. Hello. So, hello. Well, I thought we would be able to <laughs> distinguish one from the other, but you both sound equally happy. He's, he's showing you how we entertain children. Apparently. Well, so first of all, how, did you start the band with some kind of background in child psychology or something that let you know what kids enjoy, or did you learn as you went along? Well, um, this is uh, Mover Scott. Uh, I was a teacher for 10 years, and so you know, one of the things that we wanted to do when we kind of formulated this project was make sure it was research-based. Even the whole idea was kind of, uh, as a concept, was to model problem solving, you know, and foster independence uh, in kids. And really, the, the, the cornerstone was really encouraging creativity in kids. This does sound like a curriculum almost, <laughs> which is kind of amazing because, I mean, even if you're trying to teach grown-up stuff and mix it with pop music like politics or something like that, that often right. fails. And yet you did it. We did. We did. All right. So teach us a few things. Maybe to start, how do you get the average kid's attention because I know when I was a kid, that was never easy, if not utterly impossible. Kids respond to very kinesthetic and tactile kind of in, encouragement. Mm-hmm. And so our songs are interactive, like our, our, our kind of our hallmark piece is jump up, get down, stand up, turn around, and these kind of interactive activities. Come on! So I guess the first the first key is like giving getting them involved instead of they're they're not passive receptors. Getting oh totally getting them involved. We've got several songs where 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 the chorus or the lyrics of the song are are the instruction. It's it's <laughs> the it's the instructions on how to participate in the song. You know, very simple ways for people to participate. That's so interesting because I mean like that's a lot of early rock and roll. You know these dance craze songs. Twist and shout. Absolutely. Well, like the song the wobble. It's all it's like all the teenagers right now are doing the wobble. You know, it's like it's it's basically a mover song. You know, here's here's your instruction here's the course it's do this dance you know <laughs> so we're all reacting to that kind of thing like all of us at some level are little children you're, you're right absolutely and, and i think we are you know we kind of consider ourselves the u2 of kids music that kind of a thing where it's designed for children their older siblings for their for the parents and for you know the grandparents the ushers do, you, we, do any of you wear red kind of wraparound sunglasses at any point that would be super u2 of oh, you. course uh, i wear wobble goggles <laughs> yeah scott 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 is i guess he's bono and he's got the bono hair and the and the goggles. Can I ask you something that's sort of in the opposite direction? What, sure, kid, sure. what utterly fails with kids? Have you had a, a I mean, I'm sure when you started out. <laughs> Lullabies? <laughs> songs that are slowed? Boring uh, songs. You know, mid-tempo songs are real hard songs to pull off. Um, when, when our concerts are generally 70 minutes, and one of the things that we don't do in our concert is have an intermission. You know, a lot of child children acts or acts that are based for children yeah. have that intermission. And you know, as difficult as it is to say, most of the time they're intentionally done to sell merchandise, you know. Mm, and I think one of the things that we've tried to focus is, you know, we'll have songs that are in the set that sort of give you that kind of opportunity for break uh, and for resting. So, you know, we might play a song called Mother and You. And your job during that song is to hug your mom or hold her hand. But ultimately, Go that's on. funny that even that song, which is you're saying is a little bit downbeat, it is still interactive. So the the sure, key really definitely. is constantly keeping giving them something to do. It is. 
you know, a lot of the things that are this, this, this like the kind of the rock and roll cliches that you did from concerts over the years are also work really well. So, you know, it's like, let me hear you say, oh, yeah. You know, then everyone's, oh, yeah. Like all those things, you know, that, that people have been doing for, you know, forever. Uh, when you get a group of four know, year olds, five year olds, they're yeah, going to do they, it. They get super excited. They're not jaded. They're not, they're not cynical about <laughs> it. They think it's the greatest. All right. So, so to recap, keep things interactive, even when you want them to calm down, apparently. Uh, utilize rock cliches. Maybe a couple of last tips for entertaining kids. I've got five little kids at home, and um, I, I found the key to connecting with those guys is to, first of all, sit down on the ground, be down with them, make eye contact with them, be uh, on their level, Interesting. and and let and let these guys lead. My, my littlest three, they're like a little gang right now, and they have a, <laughs> their whole imaginary world. If you're just willing to say, I'm going to look at you, pay attention to you, observe what you're doing, comment on what you're doing, they they literally could do that. They could do it all day. Yeah. You can't do it all day, but they could. Yeah, I guess the better question is, how do you keep yourself entertained at a certain point when you're in that kid's world? I mean, there is there is a point where it becomes, you know, I'm a little bored. Yeah, unless you're a saint. I mean, at a certain point, you're going to need to unplug that and go back and be with, you know, an adult or, or read the paper, whatever it is you need to get done. But, you know, uh, it doesn't have to take an hour. It can take 15 minutes in which that experience can be valid. For I've, the... I've literally sometimes set my iPhone for like a timer and say, okay, uh, I'm going <laughs> to sit down and just pay attention to whatever you're doing for the next 11 minutes, you know, and then... Gotta go. <laughs> See, sometimes it's the grown-ups with the short attention span. That's right. There you go. <laughs> uh, the Imagination Movers is the name of the band and the Disney Junior TV show. They are on tour now. And Rich Collins and Scott Durbin, thanks for schooling us. Today. You're welcome. Hey, no problem. You're welcome. Didn't hurt at all. No. So, Brendan, just remember... The next time you're at a rock concert, okay, and you engage in call and response with the lead singer, <laughs> okay. you are you are acting like a five year old. <laughs> All right, that's true. It's good to know, and I can tell you, I've definitely seen people throw tantrums at rock concerts. So this is <laughs> all in. All in the same. It's basically like nursery school with beer and a merchandise table. Yeah. And occasionally concert. lighters. Oh, man. Ladies and gentlemen, we're going to take a break. Coming up, actress Greta Gerwig and Questlove from The Roots when the dinner party returns. Welcome back to The Dinner Party, the show that gives you an edge in your weekend conversations. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. In a few minutes, we'll hear a new track from Buzz Band, The Alabama Shakes. Shaking begets buzzing. It is true. But first, it is time for the main course, where we talk about the best part of any dinner party, the food. So, Rico, you are probably familiar with hip-hop group The Roots. I am. They have a regular gig as the house band for the TV show Late Night with Jimmy Fallon. Of course. Well, the band's leader, Questlove, has gotten into the food game. Oh, because two jobs weren't enough for him. Apparently not. This is, this is why we have a shortage of jobs <laughs> in America. He has them all. This could, this could be the problem. It's not fair. Uh, probably not the problem. But look, it's good <laughs> for the world that he's doing this because it turns out his buttermilk chicken is as good as his music. Mm. Uh, bon Appetit magazine named it one of their top things to eat in 2012. Okay. And all of this ruffled the <clears throat> feathers oh, of man. David Chang, <laughs> a guy who is known for, among other things, his fried chicken. That's right, which is a big deal at his restaurant, Momofuku. Yeah, it's $100, his chicken there. Good God. Uh, yeah. Well, this week, David Chang challenged Questlove to a fried chicken cook-off on The Jimmy Fallon Show. And before it all went down, I met Quest backstage to talk to him about his new food venture. All right. And as I do with all of our guests, just to set a recording level, I started by asking him what he had for breakfast. I had uh, egg white omelet, spinach, veggie sausage, and uh, Turkish bread with no gluten 
or sugar in it. Turkish, what is Turkish bread? This is the bread that all bread lovers would kill for. This is like, you know, for those that are trying to avoid bread and uh, the carbohydrates in it, this has absolutely zero. This is like the water of bread. Does it taste like bread bread? It tastes better than bread. It's lighter than bread. I wouldn't overdo it, but... um. For those that have a bread Jones that are kind of on the eating program I'm on, um, this this does the trick. That's a pretty healthy diet for a guy who's becoming famous for his fried chicken. <laughs> See, this is this is a, a, this is a very strange uh, crossroads you found me on. Because like right now, I'm I'm you know it's bad when you're like counting the days. I'm, I'm like on day 43 of my brand new lifestyle like you got to convince yourself say oh it's not a diet it's a lifestyle this is what you're going to do for life wow so i caught you mid-lifestyle change yeah i've and this is like the real crossroads not the uh oh i got a photo shoot or video to shoot in three months so let me look right for this photo no this is this is the real thing i guess that makes sense you're kind of a big guy you're approaching 40 right you're you're a great man i'm actually over i'm 41 now i guess the the whole epiphany was kind of i want to join russell simmons and be in the Someone from the hip hop nation that actually makes it to uh, sixty or seventy, you know. Well, I wish you luck, but your work is going to be cut out for you because this month alone, you've attended the Food and Wine uh, Magazine Best New Chef event. Uh, bon Appetit recently called your chicken one of the top twenty-five things to eat in two thousand twelve. There's going to be tons of great food around you as you receive all these accolades. You know, tell me how you put yourself in this position. How did you start making and selling chicken? I did a DJ gig once, and um, this truck pulls up, and it was special. I'd never seen just an all-grilled cheese truck. And it seemed like there were more people in line for the grilled cheese truck than there were to see me DJ. And I was one of the people. Like, I'm putting on a 25-minute song so I can run and get me a... You know, a, th a three-cheese uh, rye buttered uh, grilled cheese as well. So after seeing that, you know, I kind of tossed around the idea of, like, man, I, I want to, I wanted my version of, like, I figured, like, a Questlove's version of Mr. Softy ice cream truck, but with, like, comfort food. I like it. I like it. Mr. Softy is the song of our youth, summer song of our youth. Right. So I was thinking, like, my version, like, I, you know, I would do, like, Soul on a Roll or something, so... That's always been like, you know, the dream talk. But because I'm in hip hop's version of the Grateful Dead. You said that. I didn't. Yeah. So because we're always traveling, like, I really can't commit to any outside ventures, musical or culinary. Um, so now that Fallon kind of keeps us uh, uh, in one place for a long period of time, I started to get that Jones again. And my manager was like, well, you know, why don't you explore that option? Um, I created a, a Twitter page uh, at Cook for the number four Quest, Cook for Quest, and kind of put the word out there that I was looking for a chef. And um, you know, I'm happy to say that you know Alita Bradley, she's made miracle chicken. Uh, any place that we've served this dish, be it uh, you know food bazaars or contests or whatever, like we've managed to come up roses. So and it's like buttermilk fried chicken. It's buttermilk fried chicken. It's incredible. All I wanted was just a simple, funky food truck with a funky version of my version of Mr. Softy's Bells playing and that type of thing. But now, you know, I, this, this, the culinary world is like no other world I've ever seen before. Well, I was going to ask you about that. You know, people say food is the new music, the new indie rock, the new hip hop. Chefs are rock stars. Uh, people now identify themselves by what they eat. You know, you represent the collision 
of music and food culture? What is going on there? You know, what I'm learning is in all the worlds that I observe, the film world, the music world, the the, the food world, um, it's pretty much the same. I mean, there is uh, there's a subculture that's usually experimenting and trying out new ideas. There's a mainstream that's trying to package and rush it to you in mass quantity, you know, for monetary means. There's an audience that has the patience to sort of sift through and pan for gold. And then there's the audience that's just, you know, open for business and mass consumption and I'll take whatever you give me. Um, And that's pretty much the same for music, for film, for food. Well, you know, long before food became as hyped as music, people were singing songs about food. Uh, You're known as a DJ. I was wondering if you could tell me your favorite song that involves food and then maybe we could use it as our outro. Um, One of my favorite hip-hop songs is one of my favorite hip-hop groups. Uh, A Tribe Called Quest has a song called Ham and Eggs where they just talk about food, their favorite foods, which, you know, is such a fun thing for hip-hop to do, you know, that rarely happens anymore. Like, you know, I would love to hear a, a Drake and Wayne song and Nicki Minaj song about, you know, their favorite peanut butter sandwiches. But, uh, yeah, that, to me, was one of the great uh, hip-hop culinary songs. And you can listen to ham and eggs, but you can't eat them anymore. I cannot eat them. Chica- so, Rico, something else I learned from talking to Quest. All right. His dad was in a doo-wop group called Andrew and the Hearts, who really? were on the legendary Chess Records label. Really? Yeah, isn't that rad? That's awesome. Yeah. So, as a kid, he basically toured around with his father, All right. and he grew up eating Howard Johnson's and IHOP. Like, that was the food of his youth. See, I can I can see the doo-wop in his music, uh-huh. but I cannot see the pancakes and blueberry syrup <laughs> of his youth and the gluten-free bread. Yeah, well, that's a contrast. It's yeah. quite a journey. Uh, people, if you want to find out how Quest's buttermilk fried chicken did against David Chang's chicken, head to our website. It's dinnerpartydownload.org. Our guest of honor this week is filmmaker and actor Greta Gerwig. She appeared in last year's remake of the movie Arthur. She co-starred in Noah Baumbach's film Greenberg alongside Ben Stiller. And she stars in the new film Damsels in Distress, the first work in 12 years or so from celebrated indie director Witt Stillman. And Greta, welcome back to the show. Thank you. I have never had a double radio appearance before. This is the first. You know. Like, it's good to be back. You're worth it. Thanks. (laughs) Thanks. <laughs> and actually, for this film, I'm really glad to have you back. I thought it was incredibly fun, extremely oh, optimistic, which is always nice in these times. Yes. And it also deals with gender politics, mental illness, and suicide attempts. I like to say that it's a candy-colored comedy extravaganza of suicide prevention. <laughs> is, That's what it is. It is true. The movie itself could prevent suicide. Yeah, I actually do think that Wit wanted to make a film that would make people happy. I think he has very unpretentious aims despite the way his characters speak. Right, yeah. Their elevated way of talking. I think uh, he very much just wants to make a piece of entertainment that makes people happy. Plot-wise, it's about a college where a lot of the guys are boors and a lot of the other students are depressed 
and these three girls are kind of trying to make things more pleasant for everyone. Is that fair to say? Right. And they're they're also not cool. Nobody really likes them that much. <laughs> but they're uh, they're very determined. You probably think we're frivolous, empty-headed, perfume-obsessed college co-eds. You're probably right. I often feel empty-headed. But we're also trying to make a difference in people's lives. And one way to do that is to stop them from killing themselves. Have you ever heard of the expression, prevention is nine-tenths the cure? Well, in the case of suicide, it's actually ten-tenths the cure. Those are cliches, aren't they? Yes, they are. Um, your, your character is almost literally insanely optimistic. How much was the attraction a chance to just do something this unremittingly positive? Well, it was unrelentingly positive, but it was also... It was so madcap. Mm. It was someone who has so many opinions and is incredibly bossy, but also is a glutton for criticism. She just <laughs> loves it when people tell her that she's wrong. And But isn't that, that I, is how, how positive she is. She's so positive that she loves it when people say something bad about her. Yes. She's, I just had never read a character that had so many contradictions and was so alive in them. She's also a liar, even though she's completely sincere. I've tried to, I actually was with Wit, someone asked him about lying, and he said, well, I think people who tell the truth are just terrible bores. And to me, Violet really is like almost a female Wit Stillman. Uh, really? He really thinks tap dancing and dressing well helps you feel better and not be depressed. That is, it is actually interesting because it is, it is so candy colored. That in the modern world, I kept wanting to mm-hmm. ascribe satire to it. Like this can't, no. this can't be for real. But after a while, you start to realize that no, this guy is completely sincere. I know. I think. I mean, you can't fake individuality or free thinking. You either are marching to the beat of your own drummer, or you're not. And yeah. um, Wit definitely is. Well, actually, speaking of individuality, yes. Last time you were here, uh, you talked with us a little bit about the Times film critic A.O. Scott. He called you, quote, the definitive screen actress of your generation. Right. But actually, what we didn't talk about was the second part of that quote, uh-huh. which goes, she seems to be embarked on a project of redefining just what it is we talk about when we talk about acting. Is this a project for you, or are you just, you know, being yourself? It's just, I think what he's no. talking about is how natural you appear on screen. No, I, I never consciously embarked on any kind of project. I think, if anything, I, I, I used to take it as an insult that people thought I was natural because I thought, oh, you think I'm not acting. <laughs> yeah, I want to be an, I want to be an actor. Like I, the actors I've always held in great esteem when I was growing up, you know, the transformative actors mm. like Kate Blanchett and Meryl Streep mm. and the actresses who really seem like they become all these different people. And I think I realized at a certain point, I probably wouldn't have exactly that kind of career. <laughs> um, although I... You're not going to play uh, Margaret Thatcher next? I probably won't play Margaret Thatcher next. That's too bad. But I'm, sorry, I'm not embarking on anything at all. I just wanted to be really accepted. <laughs> well, well, you've been on our show twice, so mission yeah, accomplished. I just, um, but I mean, John Wayne is one of the best actors I think I've ever seen do anything, mm-hmm. and he doesn't transform <laughs> no. anything. He's but, John Wayne. But you believe every second of what he does. Same with Jimmy Stewart, same with... Someone told me a story that um, Jimmy Stewart used to say, you know, he says, oh, a fellow plays a crackhead, and withdrawing from crack and we all believe it because we've never withdrawn from crack we have no idea but then he stands up and walks through a door and we say oh that's fake (laughs) that's not how you walk through a door and I said that it was a really smart way to think about it because 
sometimes when actors do very like big things, you're like, well, I don't know what it's like to fly a plane or, you know, I, I, I don't know what those things are like, but I do know what it looks like to make coffee and you don't look like you're making coffee. There's that term, the uncanny valley, where right. you see something that's supposed to look like a human and you know immediately it's not a human and it kind of freaks you out. Exactly. And I mean, I think uh, older actors in a certain tradition were very well trained at the business of being human. If there's anything that I'm interested in as an actor, what acting looks like if it feels like no one's looking at you, mm-hmm. that, that feels private. Well, look, let's uh, let's move on. We have two questions that we ask all our guests of honor. Okay. And the first one is kind of about what you're not interested in. Oh. If we were to meet you at a dinner party, what question should we not ask you? Um, I, anything about, like, uh, what makes you quirky or any anything that just includes the word quirky or how does it feel to be so quirky or what's up with your quirk? I just what's with the quirk, Gerwig? Quirky. I it just it seems insulting somehow. I don't I can't put my finger on it, but it seems insulting. And what's weird is that I don't I don't necessarily think of your work as quirky. I think of it as like it appearing no. natural, like real, but not. I mean, if that's quirky, then we're well, all quirky. When I think of like a quirky thing, I think of when Volkswagen re-released the bug, you know, and everyone had like a flower in their bug and they drove it around. You know, that seems quirky and like cute. You are not a flower in a Volkswagen Beetle. I know. Beetle. I am a, I'm like a Chrysler LeSabre. I don't know. I'm big. <laughs> you're an SUV. Yeah. All right. You've kind of almost done this by saying that you're an SUV, mm-hmm. but here's our second question. Tell us something we don't know. Oh. And that can be either about yourself or about anything in the world. It could be a piece of trivia. Okay. Well, I've got one that I don't know it's true or not, but I've always heard it was true, so I think it's a, true. It's a good one. You know the Nobel Prize? Yes. There's no Nobel Prize in mathematics. Usually if someone wins for mathematics, they'll win in the realm of economics. And the reason there's no Nobel Prize for mathematics is Alfred Nobel's wife ran off with a mathematician. What? Yeah. Isn't that awesome? So much for a high-mindedness. I know. I know. (laughs) I don't know that that's totally true, but I'm choosing to repeat it because I choose to believe that the world is that petty. I love it. (laughs) Brendan, we did some fact-checking. We meaning you and your intern, Google. That is correct, Mr. Google. (laughs) And it seems that the story Greta told is probably apocryphal, I'm afraid. It seems, for instance, that Alfred Nobel was never married. Well, there's a clue. That seems telling. And it also seems like most folks figure he didn't create a math prize, either because there was already a big math prize at the time, Uh or he just didn't like math. Wow. Very simple. So between that and our love of peace, me and Noble are like the same guy here. (laughs) That is right. Minus a few billion dollars. You are the same. And Swedish residency. And that's the dinner party for this week. But don't despair. We've got plenty of previous episodes to tide you over until next week. Subscribe to our podcast. It's at dinnerpartydownload.org. People we like. Jackson Musker, the assistant producer of The Dinner Party. Also, Robbie Carmen, Peter Clowney, our friends at Marketplace, and Judy McAlpin. And now, before we leave you, it's time for One for the Road, a song to listen to on your way to or returning from this weekend's dinner parties. 
All right, this band was formed in Athens, Alabama, just a couple years back. Thankfully. They're called the Alabama Shakes, and their blend of southern rock and old-school soul has attracted quite a following. Mm. We shared a track of theirs with you last summer. And to celebrate the release of their debut album, here's another. The song is called I Found You. Bon Appetit. Thanks for attending the dinner party. I'm a 1979 Chevy Nova. And I'm a 1982 Buick Regal. Thanks for listening.